It is an encouraging thing to not have to lead every week, but to be led in such a, I would say, God-honoring fashion. And one of the big things about our services that we have intentionally placed in the whole structure of it is that it's gospel from beginning to end. And there is, there is not a portion that is not scripture wrought. It is not uh, divorced from any portion of the preaching text that we are going to uh, hear preached. There is, there's beauty in that. There's beauty in that that I, I don't think I understood um, until I started really looking hard into what is it that God would have us do when we worship. Um, it's just, it's encouraging to hear someone else lead so faithfully. Thank you, Forrest and the band, uh, for doing that. It's odd also for me to be sitting down there while they're up here. And because I've been for a year almost, it's almost been a year since I've been here, uh, up here on stage. And that's just, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Uh, but I'm very thankful for what he has done and what he is doing through our church and through our people. And this morning we are taking a break from our pastoral epistles, our journey through the pastoral epistles, uh, letters for the, from the pastor, because it is good sometimes to let our ears relax uh, from hearing a similar tenor all the time, right? So if we hear the same melody over time, you eventually it kind of fades away, and you don't hear that same melody as crisply as you probably should. And so we're taking a break today, and we're going to Matthew 5, 1 to 16, so if you open your Bibles with that's where we'll be. And it, this might be a familiar passage for some of you. And I, would, I would venture to say for most of you. You've heard the Beatitudes preached on before, and you've heard the Sermon on the Mount uh, preached on before. And while I've been in school for the past, oh, Beth, help me, um, nine years, something like that, uh, I've been in my MDiv now for two years. Thanks, babe. You're really encouraging. Uh, I've been in my MDiv for two years now, and one of the biggest classes and the most impactful classes that I've taken has been on the Sermon on the Mount, and seeing how it answers all of life's hardest questions. Um, one of those questions we're going to see answered today, and it is the question that every human across all times has asked themselves and continually seeks after, but for some reason, it seems unobtainable. How can I be happy? Now, what I am not doing is preaching a prosperity gospel of any sort, so relax. Um, but I am preaching what Jesus says is the happy life. Well, I think that's what we see in 5, 1 to 16, is we see this very clearly. And what I mean by we have, from the beginning of time till now, been trying to answer this question, you see it from Adam and Eve in the garden, from the moment that they fell, because why? They thought they could be like God right? And that was a sort of happiness. If I could just have this one more thing, I could be a little more happy. And because Adam and Eve sinned, we are now all infected, and sin is pervasive and pervading our lives. But um, that's not just Adam and Eve. You see all these other people asking the same question, how may I be happy? It's Western religion. It's Eastern religions. It's philosophies. It's advertisements, if you think about it. The Gillette commercial is all about how I can be happy. If I shave with their shaver, if I use their shaving cream, I'm going to feel nice and smooth, and I'm going to feel, and people are going to look at me and be happy because I look nice and smooth and because I feel happy. But I'm here to say that that's not true happiness. That's fleeting. Because guess what? Beards grow back. And I got to do it all over again. 
And what use is it that I have to do that over and over and over and rely on that to make me happy? And I can hear some of us, including myself, asking the question, well, isn't the Bible, this happiness that you're describing is, is, is different? It's got to be different because I'm told to take up my cross and follow Jesus. I'm called to deny myself, deny my wants and needs for others. I'm called to do all these things that are not fun and nor make me happy. So what exactly are you talking about, Corey? It's this, that we see Jesus answering the question of what can I do to be happy in the Beatitudes. And I'm going to lay before you in three sections of the Beatitudes this very thing, this very um, call, this very truth, that the authoritative call to discipleship in Christ is for eternal happiness. I'm not talking about happiness here and now, and although that is a byproduct of these things, it is, but it is not the goal. The goal is being happy in Christ eternally. It's being happy in heaven and new, the new heavens and new earth because of what Christ has done and who he is. So if we stand, I'm going to read our text this morning out loud. Matthew 5, 1 to 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. I hope that this does a couple things for us. It shows us that Jesus has the greatest authority, and we're going to see that in verses 1 to 2. In the Beatitudes, verses 3 to 12, we're going to see that the Christian character is shocking. The life of a Christian is not something that is expected. And then in 13 through 16, we see the call to discipleship. And this authoritative call to discipleship in Christ Jesus for eternal happiness comes in this time by devoting our heart and hands to Jesus' life-giving command. So I'm going to say that again. The call of this whole text is for us to devote our heart and hands to Jesus' life-giving command. Not commands that we think we should follow, not some way that we think will give us happiness, but to the life-giving words of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
So by faith and through his grace, let us approach his word this morning. In verses 1 to 2, we see a couple of really important things that set up the entire Sermon on the Mount. Not just our text this morning, but the entirety of uh, chapter 5 to chapter 7 of Matthew. And we see this in the first few words. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And if we stop and we think about some things, I think it's really important that we understand that when we come across things in Matthew specifically, in all the Gospels, and this is just a good kind of idea for the rest of the Bible, you should ask yourself, where have I heard that before? Where have I heard he went up on the mountain, or something along that lines. Because when you come to Matthew, Matthew's already talking in prophecy and fulfillment language, right? He's already gone through four chapters of this is what God has said in his word, and this is where it is fulfilled. For instance, the very beginning, you shall call his name Emmanuel, because he is God with us. In this very first chapter, he is making the claim that Jesus is God with us. And he does this four more times in subsequent chapters. So where have I heard this before? Where have I heard uh, he went up on the mountain? Now, mountains are really important to the Bible. They're really important in the narrative of, of Scripture. And if you don't pay attention to the mountains, you will probably miss something really important. And today, the mountain that we are staring at is Jesus. Jesus goes up on this mountain like Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. But Jesus is not Moses. He is greater than Moses. His authority is perfect. It is superior to Moses. And this would have been important for them to hear because the people who have been hearing would have heard this text read aloud. They would have heard, he went up on the mountain. And they would have thought of, oh, hey, mountains are important. If he's going up on a mountain, it's very possible he's talking about Moses. And this is unmistakable because in Exodus 19 through 20, or 19 to 20, 20 to 25, you see Moses moving up the mountain of Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and coming back down. And then in Deuteronomy 18, 15, you hear that there will be one like Moses that is to come to bring peace for his people. And that's even further laid out in Isaiah. And I'm not going to go through all the Isaiah passages because we could be here all day uh, just reading them. But Isaiah 61 comes to the point, and, he, and you hear this in Luke specifically when he starts uh, preaching in the synagogue. But in Isaiah 61, you see that God will bring righteousness and justice and comfort to the mourning, and he will and give the earth to the meek, and he will bless those who are merciful. And I hope you hear that Isaiah 61 is the foundation for the Beatitudes. A lot of the same words, a lot of the same wording. You're going to hear it in both places. So not only is he like Moses, and he's one like Moses to be given, giving us righteous, but we see in Matthew 17, Moses, or Jesus ascend another mountain. Matthew 17, it talks about the trend, Mount of Transfiguration. Mount of Transfiguration, where do we, what do we see? We see Jesus stand on the mountain with who? Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus, and we see Moses and Elijah revere Jesus as who? God. Because guess what? His authority is not just like Moses. He's not one just like Moses, but he is completely authoritative, even that Moses goes to him for truth. And then we see this is even, even more pointed, and I'm giving you a small biblical theology of what it looks like to walk through the Bible and ask the question, 
where have I heard this before? But if he is one like Moses, or since he is one like Moses, we hear it in Hebrews 3 even more definitively. He is called the greater Moses in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. So it is unmistakable to see Jesus as a superior authority to Moses, which the Pharisees would have said that's blasphemous. No one has superior authority than Moses. For Moses gave us the law. God spoke through Moses to give us the law. And Jesus is being placed on the mountain to do one thing and one thing only. Give us the law of life. And as he sits to teach on this mountain, we see in verse 2, we see in verse 2 he says he opened his mouth. If you really wanted to pay attention in the Bible and ask this question, where have I heard this before? He opened his mouth and taught. That should ring in your head, but it also should, you should be hearing the backdrop behind this, that in Genesis 1-3, God spoke into the void and said, let there be light. And we know that that spoken word, the word of God in John 1-1 is who? The word made flesh, Jesus Christ. In 1-14, it's even made more clearer that he came and he tabernacled amongst his people. And so, again, in Colossians 1.16, he says, by his word, people are given authority and it was taken away. I, I just want you to see that there is no other authority under heaven and earth that can surpass or usurp Jesus' authority. And Matthew is being intentional about what he is saying. He calls to mind the mountain. So as Jesus ascends it, people are going to be asking themselves, what is he going to say? Because he's taking this position of not just great philosophers, not just great Uh, mediators of the law, but as of God himself. And he opens his mouth. Unlike Moses, who received the law, he teaches his law. It is an important thing that we see that the word of God speaks with full authority and effectual power. For when he speaks, what happens? Life happens. For no longer secondhand will we have to have a secondhand law mediated by Moses. And while Moses ascended the mountain to receive the, the law from God, Jesus ascends the, law, uh, the mountain to speak the words of life to all that might hear. And that's another point that we need to see is that he says, uh, you, hear, you hear that the disciples came to him in verse 1, but who is he teaching? Who is he teaching? We have to answer this question because if it's just his disciples, whom he just called back in chapter 4, if you just look up your page, um, if he's t- teaching just his disciples, then why would he speak in such I'm going to say vaguely, vague terms. These, these vague terms, but are so shocking. They're, they're dichotomies. They're, they're separate from one another, but at least in our natural minds. But we have to look harder. He's actually talking to all people. The crowds that, he, that ascend the mountain also, we know this is in 7.28 and 8.1 of Matthew. He's talking to all because the crowds are, what, astonished because of the authoritative teaching that he has that is different than the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus is intentionally saying this for all to hear. He might be talking to his inner circle, but he is talking to all of us, Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers, disciples and just seekers, if you want to go there. So we must hear and we must heed, and we must act on Jesus's words of life. Matthew is making no mistake that he is the one, Jesus himself is the one who gives us life, and life abundantly. And since he possesses superior authority, all must respond to his words, whether in repentance, 
or rejection. Who are you today? I can tell you that even in my own life, that I see even the most devout Christians, the most devout men and women of faith, follow whatever they judge to be right and not necessarily what Jesus says is right. We find our own standards, we cut them out of whole cloth, but it makes us comfortable, right? We want to be comfortable, we want to be happy, but we find our own standards of living. We do what we prefer, and we make judgments based on what we prefer, uh, and what we experience to be true, and what we feel is right, but those, none of those produce righteousness. None of those possess the authority and the power of God. In fact, we find ourselves wanting we find ourselves angry when we go after, when we, when we set a standard on, based on what we prefer. One of those standards I've kind of wrestled with this week, can I just be honest, that I, I feel like I need to be wearing a coat in the pulpit. But I can't bring myself to buy a coat to preach this one time. Um, there will be more preaching, and I'll go get a coat eventually. Don't worry. But I, I think that's a preference of my own, that I'd wear a coat. But if you hang on to that as a standard of rightness, you will find yourself angry that you didn't, that person, whoever it is, didn't meet that standard. If you hold the standard of rightness based on your experience, you will find yourself depressed, lonely, anxious, wondering why it can't be my way. Ask my five-year-old. She does this all the time. She, well, daddy, you said one thing. It's like, yes, I did say that, but I also know that this is not right, and you should do this anyway because I told you to. Not because I told you to, and that's not, the, not because I told you so, I hate that saying, but because it is good for you. It is good for us to listen. And if we do base th things based on what we feel, we develop animosity and strife between one another that just causes disunity amongst our own body. Think about this. When we set standards that are not set by God, what we do is we find ourselves in disunity wondering and waiting for unity to happen, but, it, you know, it might just be because we didn't look past our own noses. We didn't actually see what is going on. We didn't actually seek what God's standard was for that given situation. Psalm 82 condemns this whole cloth. It's called, a, he, it's a psalm against unrighteous judges. And if we create our own laws, we are just like them. Unrighteous judges who need to be corrected. And Psalm 1 gives us that correction. But I just want you to see that this following after whatever we judge to produce life is only going to produce anger, animosity, wanting, unsatisfaction, things that cannot actually satisfy you, even if it is for a moment that you feel good about whatever you said or whatever you did. That moment is fleeting. So we must devote our hearts and our hands to Jesus' life-giving command because of his powerful, authoritative, perfect word who knows everything about us and is the one who sets the way of life. So how do we do that? How are we to place our trust and hope in him in a way that we can follow this in every aspect of our lives? First, you have to know him. In a room this size, I can guarantee, especially in, if, if no one else are children, they need to know Jesus. They need to know Jesus himself, the God-man, the one who has rescued us from our sin, the one who has uh, brought us near to God, the one who is with us even now in his spirit. We need to proclaim him. We need to know him. We need to renew our minds to be focused on him and him alone. And how do we do that? We feed on Jesus' 
words. We feed on the Bible. I'm not talking about checking off a box by reading, his, reading our passage for the day. I'm talking about di- genuinely digesting what God has said so that we might be changed by it. So our minds are renewed and our hearts are put fast towards what God has for us and not what we think is right. And the only way that we can uh, really make that change or the Spirit changes us by, the, by His Word is by heeding what it says, by seeking, meditating on what it has said for us today. A lot of that just looks like being in it constantly. It looks like responding to the Spirit's prompting for, to regard Christ for who He truly is, Lord and Savior, King, Prophet, Priest, Greater Moses, Greater Adam, all of these things that the Bible says that He is. And when we do that, we turn our eyes off of ourselves, off of our own comfort, and look to Christ and see, find satisfaction. So what does Jesus say, this authoritative teacher, say about true life and happiness? I think we can see it summarized in the Beatitudes. I, I think that since Jesus has the authority to speak into our lives, we must know his word Feed on it regularly in order to heed its vision for not just the good life now, but the good life for eternity. But I think before we get to the Beatitudes themselves, I think it's important that we talk about what they are and what they aren't. Because I don't know about you, but I've heard this sermon about, you know, specifically four times in my life from other preachers and other pastors who mean well, who think highly of the Word of God, and yet I think we miss... I think we miss what the Beatitudes are actually saying. I think we miss the grand vision for what God has said in, to us from the mountain. So let's talk about what they aren't first, and then we'll talk about what they are. And they are not Beatitudes. In other words, be this way to get these things. Okay? They are not transactional relationship. If then, if you are poor in spirit, you will have the kingdom. If you are mourning, you will be comforted. It's not the if then statement. That's way too, that's just not what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes aren't even written in that form in, in Greek. It's very, very clear in how stark the reality is between the first half and the second half and how God himself is the only one that can bring them together. But they are not Beatitudes. They are not prosperity statements either. And, and just a little uh, about my background, I went to a church here locally when I was in high school, and uh, I love the pastor. The pastor is still one of the people that discipled me further than anybody in my high school years. But this is what I have written next to the Beatitudes in my Bible from high school. Are you ready? The more I bless others, the more blessed I am. That should shock and appall you, because that's not what the Beatitudes are. The more, blessed I, blessed, the more I bless others, the more blessed I am. No, that's a quote from Joel Osteen. Um, and uh, that was appalling when I saw it the first time. I was like, what? Are you, are you serious? This is what I hang, hung on to? Oh, if I do these good things for you, works righteousness, then I will be blessed in these ways. That is not what this is saying at all. It's also not saying that I can obtain favor from God or for God, or with God, in any way. No, the good news is, if you are in Christ, you have perfect favor with God. He hears your cries and answers them in his own timing. He is your favor. He is your righteousness. He is your eternal blessing, the one that we must hang on to. 
Otherwise, we will be what? Angry, depressed, anxious. We will develop animosity for one another and be disunified in the mission that God has placed before us. For the Christian, belief in Jesus by faith alone and through his word alone, by grace of the Spirit alone, is the guaranteed the guarantee of the justified favor with God, for God forever. There is no other kind of favor but being in Christ. And now as Christians in this room, we must heed his words. So what are the Beatitudes? Let's answer that question really quickly. And I'm just going to use a very simple sentence. Uh, Jesus's grand vision for a whole and full life in him no matter the circumstance. Jesus' grand vision for a whole and full life in him, no matter the circumstance. This word, blessed, is actually not the word that we would typically see rendered as blessed. It's actually the word for happy. But in our common vernacular, (laughs) when you say happy, we're thinking happy, happy, joy, joy. We're talking about just putting on a smile and moving through life and being happy because I got a good piece of cake or being happy because my uh, wife did a great job at whatever. Uh, But that's not the kind of happiness that we would actually render this word like. It would be the whole and full life that can only be given from above. So it's a gift, right? It's a gift of wholeness that only comes from the whole one who is Christ. And we see this by the construction Uh, the fact that we should have full life in him, no matter the circumstance. Uh, We see this by the construction of the Beatitudes themselves. You see blessed are, and then you see nine different uh, descriptions of these blessed ones, or these happy ones. And if you notice, they're all negative. Every single one of them are negative. I would even contest that pure in heart is negative, in a a way that, uh, the way that it's constructed to, to be consistent uh, be pure, being pure in heart means that you've had, what? Your sin scrubbed away from you. You have been sanctified by the spirit of truth because you have been rubbed up against the, the stone of truth. And he has washed you clean. But that is not a, that's not a good, easy process. That's a negative thing. That hurts. And then you see that there are a couple of these negative statements, poor in spirit, with theirs is, what? The blessings that are in our lives now and forever. So we have these negative and positive statements, uh, specifically so that we might live for Christ, that we might live in spite of ourselves and how we feel. So since Jesus possesses all authority, we must devote our heart and hands to his life-giving commands. And those commands are implicit in these Beatitudes. I'm not going to lay out the command itself, but I'm going to talk about the Beatitudes as a whole. And I think it's important that we see from a whole like 60,000 foot level what the Beatitudes are telling us because without that, we can kind of go a little wonky and see these seemingly negative statements as positive things. Um, And while there are positive aspects, they are not overwhelmingly positive, nor are they primarily positive. They are negative. Negative by experience, if you want to go with me there. But taken together, I think we see this. We see the way of happiness is the way of the cross. The way of true happiness is found in the way of the cross. It sounds like a paradox. And the way Jesus is saying these things should shock us because all of the Beatitudes from old 
like of all the other religions and philosophers, are like, uh, happy is the one who eats, drinks, and is merry. Happy is the one who is, what, satisfied by whatever they want to do. I'm being, I'm summarizing, but that's the idea. But Jesus is saying something completely different. They describe a heart posture that we cannot obtain on our own, but is given to us. So, essentially, from, uh, based on Isaiah 61 being our lens of a negative thing that is awaiting, uh, that is drumming up inside of us, awaiting for um, our, a release from exile, a re- rescue from exile, because that's what Isaiah 61 is. It's saying, hey, take heart. God is bringing justice. You will come out of exile. You will be brought from the, the misery that you are in. And hear these things the same way. We are waiting, an egg, waiting our um, rescue from exile. But in that waiting, we are being commanded to do one thing, and that's devote ourselves to him. So what are these Beatitudes? What are they saying? Uh, I'm going to, just so you're understanding what I'm doing, I'm going to talk about the first halves of all of them, and then I'm going to talk about the second half. So they're going to use two different um, sections to do that. So when he opens his mouth, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger for righteousness, those who are, uh, have mercy, are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Now, granted, uh, we read these naturally as like an if-then statement still, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's kind of natural the way that English works. It sounds like an if-then statement. I want you to to throw that out of your mind, and I want you to hear the, the negative effect and the positive reality of those two things. The poor in spirit live a life of desperation because of their sin, because of the brokenness of the world. They seek what is not obtainable here on earth, but is given to us by God, which is eternal life. And the only way that we can gain eternal life is by seeing the poverty that we have knowing that our sin separates us from God and we can do nothing right, nothing good eternally speaking, for any good purpose. But we are very aware of our spiritual bankruptcy, not like the Pharisees who walked around with arrogant noses, holding their heads high, walking around with crane necks, looking down on all people. No, we are beggars at the gate. We are waiting for the scraps of righteousness to be fed to us And we are longing for just the dogs to bring it to us. Because God himself has promised one thing and one thing alone. That when he comes back, when Jesus returns, he will bring and recreate a new heavens and new earth. So we turn our eyes upon that reality. But to do that, we must be poor in spirit. We're characterized by this poverty of life. And we see this in our mourning. A mourning for the brokenness aware of the sin around us and in us, and long for the way that God has for a righteousness to come. And we see this in verse 5 about blessed are the meek. The meek don't, it's not this weak strength. It's not this ability to uh, avenge ourselves. No, you have no way of avenging yourself, spiritually speaking. Um, But this heart posture of meekness is more like humility, where we sit And we wait on the vindication of God like Moses did in Numbers 12. Moses was called the meekest of all men. 
And what that means is he waited, and we see this lived out in Numbers 12, uh, in the, the story of Miriam and Aaron coming to him and saying, you have sinned against us and the nation for marrying a Cushite woman, which is against the law. But they, Jesus, or the, not Jesus, Yahweh, calls them to the tent of meeting and says, come and stand before me. And they all come and stand before him. What happens? Miriam's given leprosy. And Aaron is rebuked. Now, they're right. In the, in the letter of the law, it is not okay for you to marry uh, a Cushite woman. But what they're wrong is the fact that, G, that God himself told Moses to do so. And so, instead of justifying himself, Moses sat back and waited for the vindication of the Lord. The same is true about Jesus. He is a meek, mild, humble man. Not mild in the sense of, um, like, the lowly manger Jesus where we all want to just say, oh, isn't he so precious in the, inside of the, you know, in a manger scene. But he's meek in the sense of he did not levy or count it equality with God to be grass, but humbled himself and took a form of a servant. Even humbled himself to the death, to his death on the cross. So we see these things lived out in front of us. Humility characterizes the Christian Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's the next one in verse, um, verse 6. But here's what you may miss, is that this is not something that is positive at all. In Isaiah 61 specifically, and if you talk about uh, the wanderings, desert wanderings of the Israelites, guess what they did over and over and over? They complained. They complained about their hunger, and what did God do? He provided sustaining meal and manna. But then they complained about the manna, right? So, that's not the kind of hunger and thirst I'm talking about. But the hunger and thirst for righteousness is to see God's righteousness lived out on earth. So when we see sex trafficking, when we see pornography use run rampant, when we see rioting and looting, it is exactly correct to want that to be rectified. It's exactly correct to want us to be satisfied with God's judgment, righteous judgment. But that will come in full in the new heavens and the new earth. So those who long for God's name to be made holy and revered on earth as it is in heaven will be satisfied. Uh, those who are merciful, I think we, we kind of see this, uh, this is really hard to understand specifically in the transactional way because I want to think about it like, okay, if I'm merciful, I will receive mercy. That's kind of how it reads. But in the reality is he's saying, blessed are the merciful based on everything before it, wanting to see God's righteousness lived out, mourning over the sin, seeing that God himself will make things right in the world with the poverty of spirit, they have mercy and response to all of those things. It's a one-to-another relation. It's giving up our rights to comfort and correctness. Now, can I just admit something to you? It is hard for me to be merciful when I am right and I shouldn't be, or when I shouldn't be seeking to be right, to win the argument, right? It is very difficult. And you guys can, you, those of you who know me, you, you know that it, it kind of, you see it on my face, like, oh, that's not what I said. Oh, I need the last word. But he is saying, be merciful because you are laying down your correctness. Jesus will vindicate you. God will vindicate you when he returns, if you are truly right. But it's not just that. It's showing compassion when it is most difficult. I'm not talking about giving the guy a 20 on the corner who needs a meal. 
Although those things are good, that's not what this kind of mercy is. This kind of mercy looks to a wrong in the world and seeks to right it, either by laying themselves down or by uh, finding some other means, some other avenue to glorify God in the midst of it. In our own church right now, can I just be real with you? I've been praying for three months, three months about one thing and one thing only, that we might get enough Sunday school teachers for our children. And the Lord has been merciful, no doubt, to let us continue to meet in the midst of this time. And he has been slow to anger, but I think he is calling us, even in this text, to lay down our comfort, to lay down what we think we need to be doing and serve our children well. Why? Because the ultimate mercy is to proclaim the gospel to those who do not know it. And without proclaiming the gospel to our children, who will come after us? Who will take up the mantle of God's mission and come after us? For God is asking us to be faithful in a simple thing, which is share Jesus with our children. And I am so thankful for those of you who have already volunteered. Those who have already brought themselves to say, yes, I am going to teach our children, but I need four more teachers before we can even start Sunday school. Before we can think about starting the month-long process of, of, of getting everything spun up, I need four more commitments. Specifically for our third to fifth grade, I need two people. I need two people to commit till December. And for, the, for our nursery, we need one person to commit till December. I'm not asking for much here. I'm talking about two months, right? October, November, December. Am I missing my months? But it's one of those things where we just want to start our discipleship. And we have to have our own ideas of what comfort looks like and place them out of the way so that we might do the work of the kingdom and have mercy on those who need mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Again, I, I don't think this is talking about a positive thing. And positively speaking, we can say that a unified heart in actions as we live upon this earth is a good thing. In fact, I think that's kind of what he's talking about, oneness of mind. But pure in heart is a process that is painful because we all feel like we have the corner on the market and of correctness, right? We're all right in our own eyes. And we all have our own standards that need to be torn down, and that process is painful. But also, blessed are the peacemakers, where we exchange the wanting to be right for peace. The, we have mercy on others, and therefore are peacemakers. Again, difficult for me, very difficult for me, because I am very convinced in my own mind that I am right 99.99% of the time. And I don't really want to give the, you know, the benefit of the doubt for that 0.1%. Because I, I think it's true of all of us. We all want to be right in our own eyes. And then we come to, if you didn't understand the negative uh, aspect of the Beatitudes, he ends with this. Blessed are the, the persecuted, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's that, that, that phrase there. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It brackets verses 3 in verses 10, everything in between it, it's showing you that those who have the kingdom are pure, poor in spirit and all these other things. They'll also be persecuted. Why? But, but why are we happy? Why is this a happiness statement? It's because we will be satisfied. We will be comforted in the new, new heavens and new earth, the second coming of Christ. 
So the way of happiness is the way of the cross. To obtain this happiness is to believe in Jesus. It's not to find it in our own selves or our own power. What we can say about this is that the relationship of the two is why happiness works. Because I am, uh, not because I am poor in spirit, but because the kingdom of heaven is mine, I can see and recognize the sin and brokenness of this world. Because I know that there will be comfort coming, that my only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ, my only Lord, and that he holds me fast. The only reason why I can be humble now is because later he will avenge himself. The only reason I can uh, know that I will be satisfied is because he will be my satisfaction. Do you see what I'm saying? The second half is so important. It is the blessing. It is also the reason why we do what we do and who we are. So theirs is the kingdom of heaven, encompasses an eternal comfort that the earth cannot provide, but the earth will be our inheritance for the meek. It'll be our satisfaction through God alone that does not fade. He will have unrelenting mercy because we will see and savor God as his children in Christ's second coming. So as we endure this darkness of life, these negative aspects of the, what we know now of the kingdom. We know the kingdom is ours and is coming, and we should be praising God's name because of it, living in spite of our circumstances for the glory of God. But we constantly, and you can agree with me on this, we constantly seek creature comforts. We constantly seek creation's comforts in spite of eternal promises. I can tell you that um, when I'm told to fast, for instance, fasting is difficult for me. I love to eat. I love, love food. It is really difficult for me to say no to a steak or potatoes or anything that comes along with it. But the reality is, is asking uh, is fasting is a discipline that should bring about our realization that we do not revere Christ as we should. That we don't go to him for our satisfaction, the fountain of living waters, but we hewn out broken cisterns for fleeting happiness. We do not find our happiness in, in, in these creaturely comforts. Now, these are good things. I'm not saying they're not good things. I'm not talking about how taking a camper across the country cannot be a good thing. I'm not talking about uh, those kind of things. I'm talking about if we find our eternal satisfaction in the, what we do here and now, you will be sorely, sorely mistaken in eternity. Because it means that you do not revere Christ as well, or as great as he is. But we seek creation's comforts in spite of eternal promises by carving out the best, our best life now through our best job that we can obtain for our wanted lifestyles. We preach and pushed our children into the people that we wished we were. Parents, you know, we, we all are reacting to something. But the reality is, we don't need to do that. We need to walk faithfully and take the next faithful step towards Christ. So by doing, the only way we can do that is by focusing on him returning. Not just his person and work now, but his person and work forever, forever in eternity. See, Ecclesiastes 3.11 reminds us that we can only be satisfied by the heart of God because he is whole and he gives wholeness. So let us cast the, our bread upon his waters. Let us be delighted in his law. Let us drink from the fountain that brings us life. 
The beauty that Christ provides for us through his promises is what is going to get us there. It's not duty. It's not because I'm a Christian, I have to do this, and I, draw, I drudge along, walking without any hope. No, the hope that we have in Christ is something that we should long for, that we, that we see coming, because, and the beauty of Christ is what really brings lasting change, a real change of heart and mind. So, devote your heart and hands to Jesus' life-giving commands. So I, I, I want to be clear that I haven't talked about any commands so far. Nothing explicit anyway. What I do want you to see, though, is that um, while these are implicit commands, the command is coming in verses 13 to 16. For you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It shall no longer be good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It says that salt, who has lost its saltiness, is foolishness. It's a foolish life. That if we do not live out the enhancing power of God in our lives, the happiness that we desire for, for ourselves will not be displayed for others. It is like we hid it under a basket. It is like we did not have salt in the beginning. Because salt has two, we can agree with this, Salt has two different ideas to it. It's a preservative and it is also an enhancer. What on a steak, if you don't salt a steak and you make it, what does it taste like? Anybody? It doesn't taste like steak. It tastes like something else. Sometimes like, but, but steak with salt on it, now what tastes like that yummy, succulent steak that is super easy to eat it's no longer grimy in your mouth, but it's something that you long for, right? Uh, the next steak, uh, me, I'm all on steak right now. Beth made me great steak this past week, and I am, can we have that again? Yeah, anyway. Um, but the enhancing property of salt is what this is getting at, uh, and he makes it even more, more real when he says, uh, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people with light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, it stands giving light to the whole house and all that are in it. So here comes the command. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Yes, living in the Beatitudes, the state of the Beatitudes are good works. Living with the poverty of spirit, waiting the vindication of God for him to take vengeance upon the unrighteous. These are all good works. And that these good works come with a reality to him, that it gives glory to your Father who is in heaven. What other motivation do we need? Christians in this room, I call you now that we might let our light shine before men by starting at home and starting with one another. Let us drum up thankfulness in our, each other's hearts with by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Let us read the word of, aloud. Let us go into our communities with this joy that in spite of our circumstances, God is enough. That Jesus' full authority is what we long for and not what we know. In reality, he is king over all. We are waiting for his return. Let us pray.
O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. You have come in flesh to set the captives free, to loose those who are bound, to dry the tears of the morning. O Lord, impress your word upon us, for it is the happy life that is in you and living in eternity. It is not what we think, Lord. Impress upon us that it is not what we think is right, but what you say is right. That we might listen to your authoritative word, that we might heed it, that we might seek to know it more clearly. Oh Lord, thank you for your promise that you would be merciful to us to reveal yourself to us through your Son and in your word. By your Spirit's power, we ask now that you would shape and mold us according to your word, that we might look for true happiness in you and you alone, that we might see and savor your glory above all other things, that we might find eternal happiness in the way of the cross. Oh Lord, I pray that you would be the one that we see even now as we turn to song and reflection and prayer, that you'd be the one that we seek after, the one that we grope for, the one that we hunger and thirst for, for you are the only one that can satisfy us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.